0: You're listening to Body of Work, and I'm Hannah Mooney, here to bring you stories of movers and shakers in the sports, fitness, health, and food industries who are known for their bodies. Each episode is a chance to dive into the backgrounds of my guests, to discuss how their views on their bodies, athleticism, self-esteem, and more, have shaped the person they are today. Many of these stories are those of success, but we don't only focus on the bodies they have. More importantly, we focus on what made them. What was the work it took to get there? And what was the mindset to stay great? Motivation matters most. And so what motivates the people we admire most to stick with the things that make them great? Well, find out here. None of my guests just have a body. They put in the work for all of it.
1: So I'm here today with Tim Don, the Ironman world champion best known for his tremendous wins in.
2: Tim, welcome to the show. No, thank you very much for, for having me, Hannah.
1: So I came upon you actually based on targeted advertising from Red Bull. There was a story about you right after um, something pretty catalytic had happened in your life, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But Tim is best known for his feats of athleticism in the Ironman competitions, and uh, I know that one of the things that you're known for is like your tremendous wins um, in multiple races. But most recently, the the way that I kind of came about you was um, by finding out about your accident in 2017. And can you just tell me a little bit about what happened? What What were you training for and what happened? And we'll go
2: from there. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I've been a professional since 1997, racing the Olympic distance. But in 2014, I decided to up, up my distance and, and focus on the 70.3 in Ironman. And then in 2017, I had a big breakthrough. Um, in May, I broke the Ironman world record by over four minutes. So things were going really well. And, um, at the end of the year, the holy grail of Ironman is always Kona, Hawaii. And um, I was, yeah, one of the headline favorites, you know, to, to fight for a podium, to fight for the win. But unfortunately, I didn't didn't start the race as I had a, a very big um, accident uh, three days before the race while I was training in Hawaii.
1: So tell me about what went through your head when you got injured. Did you know what was happening at the time?
2: No, no. I, I mean, Yes and no. I mean, I knew I'd been in an accident. I was in and out of consciousness in the ambulance when I got to hospital. My coach was there and my manager um, and they were obviously putting on a brave face. I was more worried about the race in a couple of days and they had a portable X-ray machine and they X-rayed my collarbone because my shoulder was quite sore and it wasn't broken. So I was thinking, brilliant, I can race. I've just got whiplash but they wanted to do a CAT scan um, because I'd had, a, a, you know, my helmet was in, in not the best condition. And then, um, you know, from from then on, I think I had a couple more, I had two two more MRIs. And that's when they found out or saw that I had a, a C2 fracture. And that's kind of, yeah, I think that's when it hit me. But it, it, it was more, I felt I'd let everyone down. I was more frustrated. I was, I guess I was angry. I was confused because um, um, as well, you know, just I guess, with the, 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 you know, these things happen so quickly and you have to be the doctors are very amazed. They're very good. Amazing. They're very practical, um, you know, not emotional. And um, yes, but it was. Yeah, I, I think the first couple of hours were were, were, were very tough especially because I hadn't, hadn't taken any morphine then. Cause I was still, still, I still thought I could race, <laughs> but once they told me I'd broken my neck, I said, no, give me the morphine. <laughs> yeah,
1: no kidding. So a C2 is in your neck. And so what did they do, um, to stabilize your neck?
2: So I was initially in, while I was in Kona, I was in, um, I had a, I think it's called an Aspen collar. So a very severe neck collar They'd um, they were, I mean, the, Kona, and I say this with all due respect, Kona's hospital is, is, is kind of like a village hospital. It's not a major hospital. So they were having to send all my scans to Honolulu to the um, to the spinal specialist, the neurosurgeon. Um, and he was worried about where it was because it was quite quite close to the blood vessels. And C2 is in line with the top row of your teeth, but in your neck. So it's very high up. And he was more worried that um, the fracture would cause a slight Uh, blood clot in the blood vessel, which then would go straight into your brain. So they were talking about airlifting me to Honolulu to maybe operate, but just to get kind of like a second opinion from a specialist so they can really, um, you know, have a look at me and maybe do some more scans. Um, So I think I wasn't involved in this process, but they decided that I needed to fly somewhere and maybe Hawaii wasn't the best place because my family was in Colorado where we were living at the time. Um, So... Um, they said if we can get a specialist to see us on arrival and they can confirm that, then they're willing to discharge me within 24 hours, you know, to fly straight back to Colorado. So we, we, we you know, found someone, uh, a neuro um, specialist. And um, yeah, the next day we flew straight back to Denver and from Denver Hospital, I went straight to see the specialist at Boulder Neurosurgical Department.
1: And so from there, is that when they put the halo on your head?
2: Yeah. So um, I was lucky that the doctor I saw was a an avid triathlete He as an amateur. He'd already qualified for Kona. So he knew, you know, kind of when I said I did a bit of training, he knew exactly what a bit of training really meant. It was over 30 hours a week. And he said, listen, you could go for the soft race and you could have it fused. But if you want any chance to, to be a professional again, I can really only, only offer you the halo. And I said, yep let's do it. I mean, if if I, if I've got a cold and I go and see a doctor and they say I need antibiotics, I'm not going to question them because it's their, you know, their forte, their expertise. And then I was like, well, okay, but you know, what is a halo? And he told me and he said, look, the guy's going to be here in an hour. I hadn't seen my family for about three weeks because I'd been training in Hawaii. So I went to see my wife, you know, um, and then I came back an hour later and that's when they started to, you know, fix the halo to my skull.
1: And so to this day, do you have little marks in your forehead?
2: I've got I've got I've actually got um, three marks on my forehead and little dents. And then I've got two dents in the back because unfortunately the screws kept on coming loose. So they had to tighten them. But one of them, they tightened so much they were worried it was going to puncture the skull and go into the brain. So just before Christmas, they had to take that screw out and drill a drill a new screw (laughs) next to it so I ended up I ended up having um yeah five five screws in my head at one point
1: (laughs) oh my gosh that is unreal so when that happened do you remember like what you just told me is you were like yeah no problem let's do it I want to race again was there a point did you always have that kind of optimism or did you hit a point as you were recovering where you were like what am I doing
2: Oh, absolutely. No, gosh, no. Look, if I'm honest, of course I had those doubts, those moments. It was about I think it was about four days after I had the halo put in. They were trying different pain medication um, and one of them didn't agree with me and it was making me vomit. And when you vomit, you have that gag reflex where your head and neck kind of jolt. But I had these screws in my head. So every time I did that, I could feel these titanium bolts moving in my skull. And it was very painful. And I remember going to my wife. I'm going to go and get an Allen key um, from the garage and take this thing off. You know, the first probably five weeks I was sleeping bolt upright in a chair because the it wasn't so much the neck that was painful. It was just the screws because they're basically open wounds in your head. Um, you know, and the, the the halo goes down to your belly button. So any movement of that, it does slightly move the screw, and obviously it's in your bone and through the soft tissue. So it's quite painful. There were definitely times, yeah, when I thought, you know, let's just get the fusion, you know, have an operation, and then that, then that'll be my neck totally sorted.
1: Yeah. So why why did you keep it on? What kind of kept you there
2: mentally? Um, I think for me, I think it was my You know, as I say, I've been I've been to three Olympic games. I've been world champion four times, won five or six other medals at world championships. You know, I've been very fortunate and I know my career is going to end sometime, but I want it to end when I decide it ends. I don't want someone else to make that decision for me. And for me, it was I didn't want this stupid driver turning in front of me to make the decision. Um, to end it, so that that was one of the driving forces for me and i and I even to this day, I still believe i've got more to give. I still believe I can go faster um in the future so um yeah, that those were some of the the driving driving forces that 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 I used to kind of help keep me positive, but don 't get me wrong you know i didn't wake up jumping out of bed every day saying i 'm going to beat this, of course I had tough days. And I couldn't have got through it without my, my, my wife, Kelly, and, and my coaches and my friends. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, I, I just can't, I can't even like put myself in that position. Um, and so hearing you talk about it, you know, it just makes me wonder, you know, do you think that all that training that you did your whole life, like really set you up? Like, if, if this had happened at the beginning of your career, do you think that you would have had the fortitude that you had at the
2: time? Um I think if I in the first couple of years I would have gone for it because I was young dumb and stupid <laughs> if I'm honest but um no I think I think you know definitely maybe 8 or 9 years ago I I would have um maybe maybe thought of a different solution but I don't know I still think then I would have even been more driven because I would have been younger um you know, I think the thing that that I struggled with as well is 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 I knew deep down I had to make a comeback, not a comeback, but I had to get back to racing quickly rather than slowly because if I'm honest, I am oh, not, I was forty I'm 41 now, so I was 39 when it happened, but I turned 40 a week after the Halo got got taken out of my head. So I knew it was if I was 35 I would have maybe taken a soft year slowly built up and then then this year had a big year but I realized you know it's a professional game you need the sponsors to support you you need to keep your name in the limelight to get the the contracts and to to get the race organizers to to pay you to turn up and then hopefully to win so I knew I was always fighting time but in some ways I think that that made some decisions easier because it was kind of like I'm either all in or I'm not at all. There was no no way could I go half measures. I had to commit my, you know, the, the, the best of my life to it in the, over the last 18 months or not at all.
1: Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So how long total were you in the halo?
2: I was in the halo um, three months, which is very standard. But when it came off, that's when the real work really started. Because um, the halo is like a plaster cast from your belly button up. None of your vertebrae have moved. My shoulders hadn't, obviously, my neck hadn't. So there was massive muscle wastage, but also lots of stiffness. So it wasn't a case it was off and I could jump in the swimming pool, I could go riding, you know, properly, I could run. I just had to learn how to move my arms from picking an apple off the tree and kind of putting it in a basket building those motor neuro patterns, the myofascia around the muscles were tight. It really was quite disheartened, disheart, you know, from the 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 massive relief and like, you know, you know, just happiness of having it taken off soon sunk in, you know, within three or four days, I realized I was in still a heck of a lot of pain just because I was moving muscles I had not moved for three months straight.
1: Yeah, so did you... Once you took the halo off, it was after three months. And then what did your training regimen look like once it came off? I mean, obviously it started slow, but what did it look like and how long did it take you to race again?
2: So I actually started riding my bike on Zwift on my uh, turbo trainer while I had the halo on. And I'd already started um, gym workouts with mostly lower body work with the halo on. So it was a a natural progression from that. It was getting lots of physio to work on the stiffness of my neck, the scar tissue around the joint and all the muscles. Um, I was doing very basic. I was doing a lot more walking. I was building my riding on the turbo trainer, but I still had a very aggressive neck collar on. So I still could not move my neck and I had to wear it 24 hours a day for another two weeks. Um and then, from there, I could take it off two hours a day, three hours a day, and we slowly progressed from a, a really aggressive collar to a less aggressive and then to a foam collar. But that whole process took probably another month to five weeks as I was building up my training and then it was another three months it was about it was about six weeks after the halo came off that I was able to run outside with just a very spongy collar on, and it was. Um, six months after the accident, three months after the halo came off that I actually ran the the Boston marathon, much to my wife's dismay.
1: <laughs> yeah. Was she just not convinced that that was a good idea?
2: Um, I think, uh, physically no, but mentally she knew I needed something. I'm a real process guy. I need a goal and I need to break the, break the goal down into a, to a process mentally. And I really need to focus on that every day and, when it came off, I didn't have one because I, I just in my mind, I could not I could not I could not even fathom doing a, a triathlon. So running um, was the thing that came easiest to me. That's one of my strengths. And, and um, yeah, so she knew I needed something. But she did think uh, maybe I should have chosen a 1010K race, not not a marathon, considering I'd, I'd never ran a marathon on its own before, only in an Ironman. And then obviously to do it so publicly, you know, at at Boston was was another thing. She was worried about how would I cope if I didn't do what I wanted to do, um, you know, and things like that.
1: And so what did you want to do when you committed to doing the 2018 Boston Marathon?
2: Did you have a time in mind? So initially I wanted to I told everyone I just wanted to finish it and I'd be happy. But deep down, I wanted to do, I wanted to run another three hours because I, at the back of my mind, I wanted to go back to Kona in 2018, 12 months after my accident. And I knew if I had run around three hours, then, um, I would, I was on kind of on track, you know, to maybe try and qualify because that was the hardest thing was trying to qualify for Kona. But I did a, an interview for, I think it was the New York Times and I said, you know, I'd love to, you know, I want to, if I run 259, 59, I will be over the moon. But wow, if I run under 250, that'll be amazing. So the headline was Tim Don wants to run 250. And I'm like, oh my God, I didn't say that. <laughs> well, I did say that, but I didn't say that. Um, So yeah, I, I put that out there, I guess. And, um, you know, I, I felt good on race day. I mean, the weather conditions were absolutely atrocious. It was the day where we had the the minus minus two centigrade wind chill factor It snowed the day before we had a terrible headwind over 50 percent of the professional field pulled out because the weather conditions were so atrocious and i ran uh 249 42 so um yeah i i mean after about about uh after about uh, 30 kilometers so 12k to go I knew I was on for around 250 if I just stayed strong uh you know and and you know kept 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 my head in the game
1: and so I'm I'm just like sitting here stunned because you know first of all you made it so that the New York Times headline wasn't wrong which is great and then, uh, no, it wasn't.
2: It wasn't fake news. <laughs>
1: yeah, it was not fake news. So um, 249.42. So if you knew that you were on track to do that and you were going to stay strong, was kind of the adrenaline of knowing, oh my gosh, I'm actually going to beat this. This is great. Is that what kept you going? Because that was the first big race that you had done since when? When was the
2: last big race you had done before the Boston Marathon? So I guess it was six months and five weeks. So seven, uh, seven, seven and a half months, it was the world 70.3 champs where I got third at the world. Um, yeah, it did. And I, to be honest, I, got, I, I was the longer I was running and the more I was on schedule, obviously, with all, you know, GPS and average pace, you can really see every, you know, where you are, not just every mile, but every 100 meters, you can see if you're on track. And, yeah, I was getting more and more excited going, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh. And, you know, being a professional athlete, we really do know our bodies inside out. And I knew I can maintain this pace. Oh, my gosh, I can maintain this. So but then it's a kind of, well, whoa, whoa, don't get carried away. Don't get too cocky here, Tim. You know, don't don't try and be a hero and be zero blow up. So, yeah, no, it was definitely that euphoria of, you know, the last 12 kilometers. Don't get me wrong. They hurt. And my legs were, you know, uh, you know, I was in you know, but I was determined if I hit the wall, I was definitely going to run through it, as they say in marathon running.
1: Yeah. So since since the Boston Marathon, what what was the goal? Once you crossed that finish line, you were like, okay, this is what I'm going
2: towards next. Was it Kona the next year? It was Kona that year. It was 100% Kona 2018. Um, so 12 months after the crash. But the hardest thing was, is the selection process stops in August. And I hadn't, Raced Kona, obviously 2017, and there's lots of points that you get for that which carry over. So I was basically starting from scratch. So mathematically, we worked out I needed to win a 70.3 and then I think get a top six in an Ironman, and maybe I'd have to do another Ironman. So we picked a slightly, a race that had a slightly weaker field in Costa Rica, a 70.3 but there were still like guys who had been to the Olympics racing and so forth, but it wasn't kind of like a, a stellar, you know, all-star cast. And I had a good race so, and I took some chances on the bike and really attacked aggressively and I, I, I was able to win the race. So again, this is kind of my momentum was building, you know, obviously the, the, the coaching and training was going great, but mentally I was in that snowball effect, I call it. I was rolling down the hill, you, you know, the more kind of positive energy from good training sessions and winning races. The kind of bigger the snowball, the more momentum I was building. And that was kind of June time. And then from there, I flew to Europe to to race the Hamburg Ironman. And I'm I'm what you call a very balanced Ironman. I'm a very good swimmer, very good biker and a very good runner, I'd, you know, as opposed to an amazing biker, but not such a good swimmer. So I turned up and all the guys who were in my competition in Hamburg were not strong swimmers. But the day before, they decided to cancel a swim because there was blue-green algae on the lake. So I was like, no, all these guys who I was going to have a five-minute lead at the end of the swim, I was now not going to have. They turned it into a run, bike, run. So that threw a a spanner in the works, unfortunately, um, at that stage.
1: So what was going through your head when you found out that they canceled the swim? And I could hear it in your voice where you were like, what? But, how? like, how do you... (laughs) that's something was it the day before the race
2: it was two days before a race briefing they said it was a possibility and then it was the morning of the race they told us um they said that the they'd done the blue green algae is it E. coli levels and they were off the chart because it had been so hot last summer in europe as opposed to this summer where it's blooming rain every day um and um yeah they said you know People are going to get ill left, right and centre. So, yeah, you have to kind of, you know, we started an hour later. We had to change the strategy. But, you know, I mean, I was still, I don't have confidence, is the right words. You, you know, being a triathlete, you kind of it's such a fluid race and the preparation. You can't have too many kind of say superstitions where everything's perfect because every race is different every course is different you know it's a bit like marathon running as opposed to track running every every race has different obstacles and hurdles not just the course but the weather the conditions the wind the competition so you know there was always a chance that that could happen especially you know with europe being so hot but it was a blow because the 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 two other guys who were the favorite they were i mean and I say this in all due respect; they were not as good a swimmer as myself. You know, they would have lost over five minutes to me in the swim. Um, but it, you know, you you play the hand you're dealt. So I raced the race. Um, unfortunately, uh, you know, due to my neck, I started to get um, um, related injuries. So my, I when I ran, my head wasn't sitting straight. And it's quite a heavy thing, my old head. It's a big thing. So I was starting to hold it to the right um, and my left hip was getting tight. And unfortunately, on the second run, um, because we had to run 8K first. So it was was four and a half miles first, then the 112 mile bike and then the marathon 26 miles. So it was a 30 mile run day. And um, after about, about 15 miles of the run, my left hip and my SI joint started to lock up. So I went from fourth to, well, I ended up finishing ninth in that race, which I knew mathematically wasn't enough to qualify um, me for Kona at that stage.
1: Okay. And so what what year and month was that?
2: So that was July 2018. So still, you know, less than a year after the accident. But yeah. I, I was in Europe at the time, and um, I spoke to my wife and coaches, and we decided to do another Ironman um two weeks later which I would not advise if I'm honest but I just had this desire this you know to, to kind of get to Kona um, and you have to be ranked top 50 in the world as a professional to qualify for Kona so um, I did another Ironman Copenhagen but by this stage you know within two weeks it wasn't long enough to sort my hip out so unfortunately um, I had a great swim Um, I came out to swim second in Copenhagen and I was riding with my friend um, Jasper uh, Svensson from Sweden, but he crashed and punctured after about 20 kilometers. So I was on my own with a three minute lead kind of in no man's land. So I had to, I basically rode nearly three hours, 50 minutes on my own. And then I got, I got swarmed by by a big group of cyclists for the last 45 minutes of which when you're riding in a group, you can conserve a lot of energy. So I came off the bike with this big group, having worked a lot harder than most of them. But I still felt good on the run. Um, and then, um, unfortunately, that's when I started to have stomach issues. So I had to had to stop a few times to go to the bathroom. And I realised I was emptying more energy than I was putting in through energy gels, through you know isotonic drinks, electrolyte. So unfortunately, I had to pull out of that race. So after not finishing that race. And everyone who had finished, finished. I was ranked 51st in the world. So I missed out the Kona by one spot. Oh, my God. So So, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't the best situation. So, you know, I went I went to bed that night feeling very sorry for myself and very stiff and sore and not much energy in me from the race. And the next day I kind of regrouped, had a big, long conversation. My wife was back in Boulder by then. And I said, you know what? I think I'm in good shape. Let's get this hip sorted out and let's go forward and try and race a few more races, but not to go to Kona just to get back to winning races, because that's what I do. And we decided, um, you know, we, we, we'd looked at the calendar and I decided to pick a race in Shanghai because I'd always wanted to go to Shanghai. There was a race in Cozumel, Mexico. I wanted to do because it was a hot race and I raced really well in the hot and humid conditions. So we kind of picked all these races. I flew back to Europe, to, to England for, for a day before I was going to fly back to America. And then, um, I woke up the next, next day. And um I had an email from Iron Man saying one of the people who was ranked in the top top fifty has decided not to take their spot and you're number fifty one, so it's a roll down. And I was like, No, no, no. I've decided in my mind I'm not going to Kona. This you can't do this to me. I've ah, tried and, yeah. and I, And I'm not saying I'd failed, but in my mind I'd failed and no, I'm doing these other races. So I forwarded the email to Kelly and my coaches and they're like, this is amazing. You can go. But I kind of, you know, being very practical, I'd always I'd almost mentally said, no, I'm not going. But I there was this and this does happen quite regularly that there is a roll down situation. But you can control what you can control. And I can't control if you're going to go to Kona or not. So in my mind, I hadn't even comprehended it. Um, but the opportunity obviously was there and someone had decided not to take their spot. So I, you know, once I'd spoke to them and calmed down, I decided to take my spot. So then, you know, from July, early July, the, the focus was to get back, you know, was racing Kona 2018.
1: Oh my gosh. What a cool story that's no, more of
2: a roller coaster than cool but yeah, yeah. <laughs> looking back it was cool i guess <laughs> yeah,
1: no just listening just listening to it i can kind of hear in your voice just like the emotion of oh my gosh i had committed to one thing and now you know the universe is kind of telling me hey maybe this is for me so if you did at, um kona in 2018 how did you end up in that
2: race so for me i had an amazing race. Um, I didn't win. I finished 36, Um, but for me, it was just it was just a pleasure to be there. I I entered the race with with no expectation, no kind of inhibitions. I really just wanted to go there and enjoy the race. As weird as that sounds, if anyone's listening who's done an Ironman, because you really don't enjoy it for most of it. (laughs) Um, And you know, it was the first time my wife had flown out with my daughter Matilda. It was her birthday the day before the race. Um, and we I really enjoyed it and I gave a 100% and look I'm going to be honest I knew I wasn't going to be in shape to win because everyone had been training for probably 11 months for it but for me of those 11 months the first five six months I had a I was in a halo I had a neck brace on I wasn't doing the 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 base work the long slow endurance so for me it really wasn't um, you know I knew I wasn't going to gonna be fighting for a podium so I really wanted to fight kind of to enjoy it and yeah it was it was hard and tough and there were times when I walked on the run but no I was really proud that I could get back there 12 months after my accident
1: that's phenomenal that's so inspiring too and so this year we're in you know the middle of 2019 now are you are you shooting to go back to Kona
2: this fall so at the moment I'm undecided um I did an Iron. I I did a, a very early Ironman in April. I did the the African Championships, which is a very big race in South Africa, and I was in a position. And I my winter training had gone great. You know I was, you know getting slowly back to where I believed I should be and could be, fighting for podiums. And unfortunately, I had a mechanical where my handlebar a bolt in my handlebar snapped, so it, it enabled I had to stop because. My handlebar had snapped, so I couldn't use my brakes in the race. Um, So I couldn't finish the Ironman to qualify for Kona. So I'm training. After that race, I did um, three 70.3s, and I I got second, six, and I won one. So I was getting slowly back in very competitive fields against guys who are getting top 10 in Kona. But um, if I'm I'm honest, and I'm not... I'm going to be honest, um, I haven't decided if I'm going to fight to get back to Kona this year or try and qualify this year to quali- to race next year's Kona. Because also this year I'm, I'm doing something different. I'm actually um, I'm I'm a guide, a pilot for a blind athlete in the PV1 category who's trying to qualify for the Paralympic Games. So, um, I'm, we're on a tandem and I'm riding at the front on the swim. We're tied together on the thigh and on, we're also tied together on the wrist, um, you know, on the run. And I've committed to go to Tokyo this year at the Olympic Paralympic test event to hopefully try and qualify, um, try and qualify him for the Olympic games next year. That's incredible.
1: How did you get into that? Or how did
2: you make the, the decision to do that? It's a funny story. So, um, the Dave Ellis is the athlete, and um, he's the he's the, uh, the the current world champion. And I saw um, um, in the in, in in amongst all of this, myself and my wife, we decided to move back to Europe, to to, to England. And um, I saw on the British Triathlon, the national federation's website, there was this there was this program called Guides for Gold, and it was apply for this, and you can be a guide. And I thought, wow, maybe I should do this. But I, I wasn't so sure, so I didn't tell anyone. I obviously told Kelly, but I didn't tell any of my friends or my coaches. So I applied for this this um programme, you know, to go on this selection weekend. And then one of my good friends who's another good British athlete, he said, Tim, did you get the email from the Federation saying you should apply for this? I said, No, they didn't email me. Did they email you? And he was like, Yes, I said, Those cheeky buggers, they didn't even consider me. So I um I applied and I went on the weekend and I got through to the second stage. And um, I got chosen as one of the guides and I did the British championships um, three weeks ago and um, we became the British champions and we had a great race. And I've done lots of training with Dave since then. Um, He's actually in Claremont in Florida at the moment on a heat acclimatization camp. And then I'm going to join him in Tokyo. I think it's three weeks before the Olympic, the Paralympic test event to try and qualify him for, for the Paralympics next year.
1: That is the coolest. That's a, a total pivot in this storyline.
2: I mean, I'm I'm lucky. I've been to three Olympic Games and I know what it means. And I know he can't do it without an athlete of a caliber because he's such a talented athlete. It's hard for them to find a guide who's willing to commit to, you know, the program, um, because obviously there's no, you know, it's our job. There's no financial reward in it. But, um, you know, speaking to the performance director and his coach and my coach, we've been able to find a balance where I can still have a competitive year myself. But the races I'm going to do with him fit in the calendar so I can be in the best shape to, to guide him, um, you know, hopefully to 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 success. And, um, you know, look, I love the sport. I it's not that I don't I love Ironman. I love sprint distance. I love super sprint. Tomorrow morning, I'm taking my daughter to a skills clinic on bike You know, on bike transition, because there's the um, the WTS, a big international race near where I live, where the the best Olympic athletes in the world are racing from all over the world. So we're going to go and watch that. I just, the sport's given me so much. I just, bloody love it.
1: (laughs) That's so cool. Hold on one second. I um, the the room that I'm in, it just started hailing like crazy. Oh my gosh. Yeah, so I'm sitting, I'm sitting in a closet, and I just. <laughs> so um so that's that's so neat tim so now that we've we've really gone over you know what your injury looked like your recovery looked like everything that you did up until this point you know in the middle of 2019 i'm really curious where do you think this like mental fortitude that you have where did it start did it start you know when you were training did it start like, from a person, or did you have a coach or somebody in your life that really, like, helped build this mental toughness that you have?
2: I would say, and you got to hear me out here, I would say I'm not absolutely, um, I, I'm not crazy mentally tough, I would say, because, but then I've never thought of myself as mentally tough because I've just done what I've loved and I've always fought for it. I've always worked as hard as I could with what I have. And for me, that that's what I've done as a little kid. You know, when I was seven years old, swimming before school and after school, I just loved it. And I wanted to be the fastest. I wanted to be the best. I wanted to beat my mates. My, 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 my mates wanted to beat me. But, you know, since breaking my neck, people have said, You know, oh, man, where have you found this extra strength, this inner strength, this mental, you know, as you said, this toughness? And I've gone, well, I haven't found it. It's not something I've worked on, but it's made me look back at I wouldn't say my life, but people who have, I guess, helped me along the way. And I guess it starts with my my parents. You know, they if I started something, they always made sure I finished it, whether it was, you know, an eight week class in learning how to play the trumpet or it was, you know, I want to join the, the local soccer, the local football club when I was younger. They, if I didn't enjoy it one week, they wouldn't let me give up and try a different sport. So I guess, you know, my parents ingrained that work ethic in me. And I think when you work hard, you have to be mentally tough, whether whether you work for, a, you know, a hedge fund company on Wall Street or you work for the, the local municipality. You have to have, have to have that work ethic. And I think with that comes mental strength. Um, and I think you know people that people that don't do sport see people that are, are very high achievers in sport. Whether you're, you know, uh, Michael Phelps or uh, Peyton Manning, um, you know they see that as being extra mentally tough. But for them, it's, it's very much a skill set that they've trained and worked on, and, and part of that skill set is dealing with pressure, is being mentally tough. But I, I, I'm sure if you if you speak to to many professional athletes. They wouldn't say they, they, you know, sometimes it's stronger being a single mum with two kids working three jobs. That is mental toughness to me, you know, but to other people, we're mentally tough. So it's, it's a, always a funny question because I'm, I'm no different to, to you. I have days where I don't want to train. I have days when, oh, the kids are driving me nuts. You know, I, we're not kind of these superhuman athletes. We, we really aren't.
1: You're really just people who are committed to, the things that you love and that's because it sounds like you know the whole time that you were training it was kind of like well I love this and I want to get back to this and that's what makes it worth it it's not I'm gonna go be Tim Don in super mentally tough and be better than everybody else because that's what I've decided to do it's mostly for the love of the
2: sport right it is and I know that maybe sounds like really but honestly I, I, I say this I've never worked a day in my life since I left high school I've been a professional athlete I've been swimming biking running I've lived in south africa for five years i've lived in colorado for five years i've raced in i've visited over 40 countries through my sport how can you not love that but the 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 higher you climb the harder you have to work but the more reward there is and i'm not i don't mean the reward necessarily financially because trust me we do not make hundreds of thousands of dollars the reward is the lifestyle i'm able to live the time i can spend with my family the the life experiences Um, you know, I always say, and I genuinely mean this, I recommend going to an Olympic Games. If you can go to one event, it is one of the most phenomenal, like, like your hairs are going to stand up on the back of your neck to when you think that every athlete at the Olympic Games has dedicated four years of their life to that event. And only one person is going to walk away with the gold medal. The person who finishes fourth has to wait another four years to express themselves. And to me, that is just, just the buzz.
1: (laughs) Well, that's, so that's such a good, you know, kind of final comment, especially because everyone that I've talked to, you know, going into this podcast, the whole goal is to really just tell stories about how everyone is different and how every athlete, they do it for different reasons, but at the end of the day, it's, it's a commitment to something that they love um, and how you are so different than someone else that I could be interviewing so different than me as a, you know, amateur athlete, somebody who takes care of their body and is really focused on becoming a better version of myself. You know, every conversation just goes to show like, wow, the world is made up of really impressive people. Um, and so that's, that's why this has been so cool to talk to you.
2: No, and I think, yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm just, Yeah. I'm just in, enjoying it, working hard, and yeah, having fun on the way, and you're trying to go fast, real fast.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's what you tell yourself. I'm just trying to go fast,
2: yep, <laughs> faster than anyone else in the world.
1: <laughs> I love that. Well, Tim, it was awesome to talk to you. Thank you so much for um, talking to me today is there Is there anything that you want to share that we didn't go over? Um, you know
2: is there what's the kind of next thing on your agenda? So um, believe it or not, um, no, I mean, I think that's great. The next thing on my agenda is I'm racing in um, Astana in Kazakhstan. Um, I'm doing a a 70.3 there. And as I say, then I go to Tokyo and then I'm looking to do a race in Ireland later in the year and one in Chattanooga. But there is something really cool, actually. In December, I'm doing this crazy Ironman called Patagonia Man. And it's in Patagonia Man and it's an Ironman but it's an unsupported Ironman. So there's no aid stations. So the the Chilean Navy take you out in a boat 3.8 kilometers, 2.4 miles out to sea, and you have to swim to shore. And then it's 112 mile bike kind of point to point. But there are no aid stations giving you, you know, bottles, energy drinks. So you have to have a support crew. And then when you get off, you've then got a, a marathon to run. Um, 26 miles but it's all off road uphill downhill and then the last um, I think it's 12 kilometers one of your support crew has to run with you because it's quite treacherous up the mountains in Patagonia so I'm really excited about that challenge in December so yeah that should be good fun (laughs) I think
1: (laughs) oh my gosh I'm so excited for you I'll make sure that I
2: follow that along and you said that's in December yeah December the 1st so yeah um, yeah, yeah. I've never been to Patagonia. It's meant to be a most beautiful place. So yeah, I'm really, and one of my best friends, um, who I grew up with is going to support me. He's going to be my second. So he's flying out with me. So yes, yeah, we're going to have a blast out there. Well, I, uh, he will, I'll be, you know, yeah. Killing myself.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, Tim, first of all, thank you so much for coming on and talking to me and second, best of luck with all your races through the end of the year.
2: All right, thank you. And thanks for having me. And yeah, no, I really enjoyed talking to you. So thanks very much.
0: So there you have it. Another amazing story from someone committed to what they know will make them the best version of themselves. It's not magic and it's not superhuman power, but it's also not rocket science. To do the work, you have to want to do it. So tell me, what's your mindset? Talk to me about it on Instagram at bodyofworkpodcast, all one word. Till next time, let's get to work.